Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I sent a note to uh, Lee Brody, who does all of our booking uh, with the types of Leon Cooperman, and I said, uh, Lee Brody, get Leon Cooperman on. There's any number of reasons we can always speak with a gentleman from Goldman Sachs, and of course now chairman, chief executive officer at age 78 of Omega Family Office. But far more, it's about the never-ending debate of a wealth tax and of going after the billionaires. Mr. Cooperman has been more than vocal Harkening back to a letter of two, three years ago to the senator from Massachusetts, it is a five-page, single-line doozy where Leon Cooperman takes on the liberals, the progressives, and Senator Warren. We are honored that Leon Cooperman could join us on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Lee Cooperman, the debate is the same, and yet it's different. What's different now versus when you wrote that letter two, three years ago? Well, I think it's becoming a little bit clearer that the general populace uh, is not in alignment with the progressives. You know, you saw that election in New Jersey, you saw the election in Virginia, um, and they dropped the uh, proposal to have this tax on unrealized gains. But, you know, I'd like to take a second with your permission. Uh, I'm not involved in politics. Uh, about two years ago, I gave a speech at a hedge fund conference at a time when Elizabeth Warren was running strongly in the polls. And none of my speech was directed towards politics. At the end of my speech, the moderator asked me, what do I think the market would do if Elizabeth Warren won the presidency? And I said, you know, maybe I was optimistic. I said the market would drop at least 20%. The very next day, not knowing anything about me, she tweets, Leon, I'm only looking for 2%. Give others a chance of the American dream. And I made a decision to take the high road and basically... Uh, Michelle Obama once observed that when they go low, we go high. And I wrote her a very good letter, the letter you decided a moment ago. And she showed to me that in the best sense, you know, if I want to be polite, I would say, uh, and respectful, I would say that she's a politician in the worst sense of the word. Uh, and if I want to be a bit more sharp-tongued, I would say that she's a nasty fool, uh, but let me explain. You know, um, when I wrote the letter, basically, her response was, you know, insider trader and uh, own stock in Navient. Totally unresponsive to the intellectual well, content of my letter. You know, the fact that she libeled me. I won the case with the SEC. I was well, not fit. You know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, Leon, this is really important at a moment when what you call the vilification of the rich is gaining steam, that the idea that people feel like there is a fair share to be paid and that the wealthiest individuals are not paying it. What is the backdrop leading to the increasing calls for the fair share rather than trying to close loopholes in some of the other proposals that you've put out there? It's a good question. I think it results from income disparity, and the income disparity largely results from government policies. You know, go back to 2008. Uh, Mr. Bernanke figured out the economy was going down the toilet. He had to rescue the economy. He figured the best way to rescue the economy was to get wealth up because wealth leads to consumption. Uh, and the best way to get wealth up was to get the stock market up. The trouble is 80% of the stocks are owned by 20% of the people. 
And so uh, income disparity grew. Right. And the government tried to get that money back by creating an environment where there's been no return for savings. Leon, I wanna, I've, I've got to get to the heart of the matter in 2021. And here's the bottom line. We've got a definition in this nation that 400,000 is filthy rich. It's St. Barnabas Hospital in New Jersey. If you've got a full-line doctor, surgeon, whatever, and the spouse is working as well, or even if it's a single person, they're paying 400000 and they're deemed by liberals to be rich. With all your experience growing up dirt poor, is 400000 in 2022 rich? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think doctors have gotten totally screwed by the government. When I look at what they have to go through to get their degree and be able to practice, and then with the controls over their income, Look, I, I believe in the progressive income tax structure. I believe rich people should pay more in taxes. You know, um, the question we have to deal with as a nation is coalesced around the question, what should the maximum tax rate be on wealthy people? Because yeah. that, be, that will define the revenue yield to the government. The government has to size themselves that revenue yield. Okay? And all this talk about wealth taxes, it's all baloney. They said, let them close the loopholes. You mentioned that a moment ago, Lisa did. You know, 1031, the ability to roll forward indefinitely, real estate gains. You know, get rid of that. Get rid of carried interest for hedge yeah. funds. R raise the tax rate. We don't need new forms of taxation. Okay, we just uh, deal with the loopholes. I yes. do want to just uh, go into something that you were talking about, the idea of monetary policy pushing up equity pricing and that that does not reach everybody. Do you think that monetary policy, where it has been, has exacerbated the divide that has led to the discussion that you're talking about right now? Yeah, I, I would say so. Look, you got to go back. You know, Bill Clinton didn't vilify wealthy people. Ronald Reagan didn't vilify wealthy people. George Bush didn't vilify wealthy people. I respect Obama as an individual, but he started this whole thing. You know, I've become a letter writer. I wrote him a letter nine years ago, and I said, you know, you're basically telling the 99% they're being screwed by the 1%. Why are you telling 99% with a lot of hard work and luck uh, they could become part of the 1% uh, instead of vilifying the wealthy. I, 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 I think the world's a better place because of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and people like that. You know, I don't see a reason to vilify them. Tax them. I have no problem with taxes. You know, I'm actually, I've taken the giving pledge with Buffett, and I've taken another giving pledge with my friend Mike Levin, the Jewish giving pledge. I'm giving away all my money, you know, so it's not a selfish motivation. Well Leon, we got to leave it there. We are out of time. We'd like to continue this discussion as well. Leon, we've got to get you into our studios here in Manhattan when you decide to leave the acreage in New Jersey. Leon Cooperman with Omega Family Office. At The heritage of Credit Suisse and derivatives is immense. It's Dominique Constum and any number of other people, including, I believe, Nassim Taleb ages ago. Derivatives and the mathiness of it has always been front and center at Credit Suisse. Holding court is their chief equity derivative strategist, the statistician and economist, Mandy Zhu, joins us this morning. Mandy, thrilled to have you with us. Can you explain the vol that you see in the cross moment skew to mere mortals. Explain the oddities of the third cross moment skew. We're not doing kurtosis. We're kurtosis free today. But your world of skew, explain how skewed skew is to mere mortals. 
So thanks for that introduction, Tom. You know, I can say definitely skew is a skew right now. Um, but, you know, when you talk about all the macro risk, you know, you guys let off with all the macro risk that's facing markets, inflation, the Fed, et cetera. I would say, you know, what's currently priced into the equity market is actually fairly bullish. Um, so one of the more um, notable things that we've um, seen in the uh, equity market right now is that on market rally, volatility is actually going up. Now, that's very unusual because typically vol you know, imply volatility decline uh, on market rallies. And on the surface, you might think that's you know, more of a cautious signal that people are you know, buying puts or you know, um, pricing in more downside risk. But actually, over the past week on this market rally, implied vols are going higher on the back of demand for upside calls. And this is, uh, I would say, particularly pronounced in small caps. So if you look at the Russell index, for example, Russell had a very uh, large breakout move last week, up 6%. Uh, Russell skew actually flattened to not just a one-year low, but actually toward a 10-year <clears throat> low, right? And this was primarily driven by demand for those upside calls um, and call volume being very, very elevated in Russell as well. Mandy, could you describe the character of that upside position, where it's coming from? Is it primarily retail? Is it short dated call options? What does it look like? Yeah, sure. Um, so at the index level, I don't think it's primarily retail. I mean, at the single stock level. So, you know, when we talk about skew flattening, this is a dynamic that we're seeing not just, you know, for the Russell index, but actually at the single stock level, S&P, you know, top 50, top uh, 100 stocks. Uh, we've also seen a very pronounced flattening in the skew. And again, primarily driven by the call side. And at the single stock level, we do think mostly this is coming from retail um, because in terms of the institutional flow that we see, it's actually the opposite. A lot of institutional investors, asset managers, pensions, hedge funds are actually coming in to sell calls to overwrite their positions. So taking advantage of that bid to the upside that is, I, I believe, you know, uh, primarily driven by retail. Mandy, taking a step back, throughout the year, people have been talking about options being the tail that wags the dog. The idea that on a single stock name, you've seen the options market really overwhelm the uh, fundamentals and dictate some of the moves. Are we seeing that on a broader basis more than we have typically in the past? We have definitely seen more pronounced, you know, single stock moves. I don't, you know, necessarily attribute that to the option positioning. So I would say, you know, recently it's really been driven by earnings. So what we have seen um, over the past month is actually one of the biggest increase in single stock dispersion during earnings season in five quarters. Uh, when I say single stock dispersion, I mean you know large single stock moves mm. relative to the index. Um, and and this you know this quarter uh, was not just the largest <clears throat> in five quarters, the third largest going back 15 quarters. Um, <clears throat> another way of thinking that uh, of thinking of that is that you know a correlation, realized correlation in the SP, you know, has fallen significantly as we get these idiosyncratic uh, moves on earnings. Uh, so correlation SP is currently at a one-year low on both an implied and realized basis. And again, the moves are I say pretty broad-based. It's not really driven by one particular sector. So correlation is currently at a one-year low for seven of the 10 S&P sectors as well. Mandy, on a broad basis, looking at cash derivatives versus the huge nominal gross-up of what all that paper's really worth, are we at a point of derivative speculation now, or is it rather a contained normal market? You know, that's, that's always kind of the... Um, 
the, the, the question, right? I, I think at the certainly at the index level, um, I do not think you know we're in a situation where the derivatives market is overwhelming. Um, certainly, no, you know, not as a market like the S and P as deep and liquid as the S and P. Certainly, on single names, um, particular single names, you might you know make that case where, where you know, option activity has been very concentrated. Uh, but at the index level, you know, we do not think so. Mandy, always great to hear from you. I've missed you. It's been too long. Mandy Zhu there of Credit Suisse on this equity market. Thank you very much. Chris Morangi joining us now, co-CIO of Gabelli Funds on this equity market. Chris, we've got to start there, haven't we? How did you react when you saw that six handle on CPI in America? Well, unfortunately, not with a lot of surprise. Uh, we're just getting through Q3 earnings season now. And unquestionably, the theme of all these calls, whether it's autos or food or even the Walt Disney Company last night, is inflation and supply chain issues, um, which inflation being one manifestation. Um, so um, tra everything is transitory in a long enough time frame. Uh, this doesn't look like it's changing anytime soon from what we're hearing from companies. Uh, freight is probably going to loosen up first, uh, but semis going to take a longer time and uh, labor, we don't know. Chris Ferengi, how do you inflation-proof a portfolio, a measured value, Mario Gabelli, uh, a certified starred portfolio, how do you inflation-proof it? Well, the, the reality is that there's no way to inflation-proof it, um, and uh, not something that equity managers have had to think about for decades, really. Uh, notwithstanding that, there are ways to, to uh, limit the impact of inflation, looking for companies with pricing power in particular, uh, and then the, the nirvana is really to find companies with both pricing power and fixed uh, fixed costs. Um, you know, waste companies I've right. talked about before. It doesn't cost more to, to get rid of garbage in a landfill that's already paid for. Um, so we're looking for those. We're looking for stores of value, just like everybody else. I think the whole inflation, the prospect of inflation right. is driven the crypto market. So if you look at gross margin, are you bringing even down to a healthy EBITDA, big percentage margin that helps you with that inflation proofing? Does that steer you back to big tech? <laughs> well, there's no question that uh, at least some of the, the big tech companies, you know, Google comes to mind, have enormous uh, pricing power. Uh, and, and there are many ways in inflation conduits. Um, then we think about, OK, well, what's the uh, what's the impact of interest rates? And, and obviously, the higher interest rates probably more impactful on those companies that have cash flows well into the future. So we've got to balance those things. Chris, it was Warren Buffett who came out and said, only when the tide rolls out do you discover who's been swimming naked. Is the tide starting to roll out right now? Uh, well, we know, we know that the, the, the tides uh, come in and out. Um, we don't have a great schedule for that at, at, the, at the present time. But yeah, I, I think we're probably closer to the tide going out. Um, that was saying that, listen, Rivian's got an $85 billion market cap. Uh, so um, this, isn't, this isn't changing yet. At what point do we start to see some real disruptions, however, where we see the most vulnerable players shaken out? Yeah, I think, I think we're already starting to see that. Um, you know, this will, uh, an inability to pass along costs will cause financial pressure, will cause pressure on debt service for a lot of companies that, that have leverage. And, you know, as the, as the debt markets perhaps tighten up, um, they might not be there for those companies. So this is a process that probably plays out over, over time. Can you weigh in on that, just briefly, Chris, that we've got an $86 billion market cap on an automaker that only just started delivering vehicles a couple of months ago. How do you respond to that, Chris, someone like well, you? Yeah, someone like me who, you know, owns uh, GM, with, which is a very similar market cap and obviously a much larger market share. 
Um, it's puzzling. Uh, listen, with, without uh, Amazon, I don't think they'd have nearly the market cap that they do. But Rivian appears to be a, a real company. Uh, but it's challenging to actually make stuff, make cars, get them delivered to customers, service them, and all those other things. So I think it's going to be a bumpy road for that company. But, um, you know, they're probably going to be a good competitor. Have you bought it, Chris? Did you buy the stock? No. Now, you know, we have... Uh, we, we like to participate in some of these stories through suppliers, and one of the suppliers to Rivian is a company called Tenneco, a little teeny tiny auto supplier that makes a suspension for them. So that's one way, one way we play it. Let's see if they can ramp up production in a big way. Chris, great to catch up. Remarkable moment for that industry. Chris Morangi there of Gabelli Funds. Right now, an important voice on your inflation Chairman Powell's inflation as well. Julia Coronado is president and founder of Macro Policy uh, Perspectives out of Texas, Austin, and of course, uh, always vetted for a position with the Fed where she's worked for a good number of years. Of course, iconic at BMP Paribas, really talking a tepid GDP a crisis ago. Dr. Coronado, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. You are read worldwide for itty-bitty charts on page seven where you go... Oh, and your O chart this week is old and new guesstimates of rent inflation. What is the dynamic of rent inflation in America? Well, it looks like we have a hot rent cycle on our hand as well. Uh, so we've had a couple, two months of prints. We it came basically a month earlier than we were expecting, but. You know, a lot of the indicators have been pointing in this direction. This isn't a, a surprise. Of course, calibrating the magnitude is always the trick. So it came in a bit hotter uh, in October. But it looks like we're going to have a surge in rents in the first half of next year, starting now, going into the first half of next year. Um, you know, like many things this cycle, there was a surge of demand early in the cycle. We are seeing a building response, but of course the building response takes some time always, and it's gonna take even more time given supply chain bottlenecks. So that's also uh, gonna probably be a 2023 mm -hmm. issue before we see that uh, moderate back down. So that's adding to the other pressures that were coming more related to COVID disruptions and supply right. chain issues that have renewed in intensity mm -hmm. because of the Delta variant. So it's sort of a combination of things that look more transitory and things that look more cyclical that are combining to produce some pretty, oh, and the third factor, of course, energy prices. And that really wasn't coming from the global right. uh, or from the U.S. situation. That's really, a, you know, China, European driven <clears throat> dynamic, but it sort of rolls into the U.S. and uh, and hits U.S. consumers. Tell me about the timeline of a Fed in waiting for an inflation to turn around and become disinflation. Is it out to January 26th of next year? The Fed meeting of March 16th, or dare I say, can they be data dependent to May 4th? Yeah, I think, I think they can be data dependent. This is really an uncomfortable situation because, again, the inflation is being front-loaded near term. Anything they do today isn't going to have an effect for a year or more. Uh, and meanwhile, what we know is in train. We're still surfing this epic wave of fiscal support that will fade over 2022. That 
that money will be spent, that consumers will, uh, demand will cool off to some extent. Um, that's what everybody's forecasting, uh, including the Fed. So, uh, you know, as these forces come together, do you want to pile on to this front-loaded tightening? Do you want to bide your time and wait for some of those forces to play out? Uh, it's going to be a, a tough road for the, a tough balance for the Fed to strike. We, we do think they will lift off in 2022, but we don't, we don't think it'll be toward, till towards the end. We, we've got a taper. The, we, we are putting in a lot of global removal of accommodation, and we haven't yet seen its impact on markets or the economy. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I think the Fed proceeds. I think still the bar is pretty high to accelerating a tapering. Um, but, you know, look, the good news is that some of this reflects a U.S. recovery that's pretty darn resilient. As Delta fades, we're seeing demand uh, stay strong, and that bodes well for the staying power of the recovery through this burst in inflation. In other words, you know, one thing you might worry about, and, and some, a few, a handful of analysts do, is that this could be demand destroying. This burst of global inflation tends to be sort of a harbinger of, of recessions. We don't think that's the case because there's just such a good foundation for, for the U.S. recovery. Uh, Julia, the next stop for this market, as you know, is the December meeting. At that meeting, we'll get some forecasts. We get the summary of economic projections. And I'm just looking at the forecast for core PCE at uh, the Fed for next year. It's 2.3%. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, from your perspective, Julia, how much does that need to change? I mean, that's actually our forecast. So it's um, not, that is a strong forecast. That's a forecast that includes a very strong rent cycle. But the key there is that goods inflation moderates as the year uh, progresses. Uh, so that remember, that's above target inflation. That that is strong inflation. All it builds into it is that the supply chain issues ease, uh, that semiconductors become more available, that car prices flatten out, maybe cool off a little bit. But all you have to do is have goods prices stop going up at the pace they've been going up to get to that forecast. So it's not an unreasonable forecast. That said, I do think they raise the near term. Uh, the current year forecast looks too low. Uh, and I do think instead of like half a hike, we do get a full hike in the baseline. It becomes the modal outcome for the committee. Uh, and and then, you know, steady as she goes, it's gonna be, they're gonna feel the heat from all the questions, but I think the Fed's job here is to be the steady hand and well, keep their eye on that medium term. Julia, the idea of them being a steady hand when it's not as if they are not affecting some of these dynamics. I mean, the idea of rent inflation we're talking about at a time when they're buying mortgage debt, they're buying bonds that actually reduces the yield on the margins of like the loans that people take out, elevating prices. At what point will be staying the course not be adding accommodation and will they be forced to end the taper sooner? I mean, to me, this is going to be an increasing question, especially since they didn't give guidance as to how much they were going to be pulling back at the beginning of the year yet. Again, Lisa, I think, you know, you, you, you're, if you think about what the choices are here, slamming on the brakes, uh, will that be better than, you know, letting demand run a little hotter for a little longer? You know, uh, what, what are the pros and cons of these scenarios? I think ideally, if the Fed could calibrate policy, you know, with a fine point in a timely way, they would have been maybe less accommodative now 
and then more accommodative, you know, towards the end of 2022, when when fiscal the fiscal impulse becomes a drag, you know, when you model out the fiscal impulse, we've just had this epic impulse. But from a growth perspective, that's going to run out of gas. Uh, even with this new, you know, uh, fiscal packages, these are medium-term, longer-term packages. They don't have anything to do with really the near-term demand profile. So, if the Fed could, you know, fine-tune things, they would do a little less now, and then maybe a little more later to pass that baton between fiscal and monetary and smooth the recovery. They don't have that luxury. So, you know, what what is the best thing to do? Uh, Obviously, you know, if there are signs of, you know, wage price dynamics becoming more entrenched in the economy, they can lift off in June and go pretty steadily. That would be a pretty significant tightening in monetary policy. We can kill inflation. That's not the question. We could kill this recovery. The Fed could kill this recovery anytime they want. That's not what they want to do. Uh, and, you know, if we, we, the good news is the other important piece of October data was a really strong jobs report. Uh, and that's creating the foundation for the Fed to pull away eventually and hand the, the responsibility for, for growth back to you know, the private sector and the labor market organic momentum. Uh, and you know, they're, they're in process of doing that. But ripping away stimulus and slamming on the brakes it, probably won't be good for anybody in the global economy. One thing that I think the Fed is well aware of sure. this cycle is that the U.S. is outperforming. We have more support and more momentum than most other countries and regions. And yet we are the keeper of the global currency. So that's a pretty important responsibility. If we slam on the brakes and that hits the global economy, which is more fragile, uh, then, you know, that's going to roll back onto our shores as well and destabilize global markets. So, you know, that means the U.S. runs a little hotter for a little longer, and that's probably a price well worth paying. Well, it's certainly running hot right now. Julia, it's going to yes, catch up. Is. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.